You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. The majority of us have accepted jobs with companies we thought were going to be a fit, only to find out later, uh, not so much. Most of us are also extremely aware of the rise of artificial intelligence. Yet, what happens when the two cross paths? When AI is used in the recruiting process to identify optimal fit, and how does it impact the growing and care of culture? Each area can impact company strategy, direction, makeup. And to explore this topic today, we're talking with Vijay Sundaram, Chief Strategy Officer for Zoho. Vijay, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Chad. Okay, so before we jump into the topic, we always like to start with a question to kind of give our guests a little bit more insight into who you are as a person. And so we like to start with, you know, something that you're passionate about, maybe a hobby or a pastime that you have that people that know you from a business standpoint might be a little bit surprised to learn about. <laughs> That's a good way to start this. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I own and ride a motorcycle. I would call it more a pastime than, than a complete passion. And apart from giving me a chance to be out in the open doing just by myself, it also allows me to tinker around with it and sit with my 14-year-old daughter and fix things. Right. And what, may, may I ask what kind of uh, motorcycle you have? It's actually a, it's a cruiser. It's a Honda. It's not a very big bike. It's a, it's a street bike, and it just, I use it to get around town and have fun on the weekends. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I myself am a passionate Harley rider and uh, have, have, have plans to do a, a two-week trip through Yellowstone uh, this summer. So anytime somebody says motorcycles, I... <laughs> Get That's fantastic. That's fantastic. You have something in common, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, for our listeners, I'm familiar with Zoho. It's a brand that I've I've known for a long time, but some of our listeners may not be as much. So, I was hoping you'd just give us kind of a, an overview of Zoho, the company, and your role there. Sure. Uh, when most of the, most people think of Zoho, they've probably heard of the CRM product that we provide. We indeed offer a very competitive CRM system, but that's actually only a part of what we do. Zoho builds business software in multiple areas. So starting from sales, where of course CRM is our flagship product, we also build products, software products in the areas of marketing, customer support, HR, people management, finance, accounting, and I've not even reached the end of the list. It's, uh, we also have a, I know, we also have a cloud office suite, much like Microsoft and Google, and a lot of productivity and collaboration apps. So in a sense, we've taken a stance very different from most other companies, which tend to build a product or two and focus on it. We've taken the last 20 years to go out and build a very, very broad swath of products, and more than 40 at this count. If I were to summarize it, uh, focus is to basically enable a company to run its entire business on the cloud using just Zoho apps and interacting with other apps if they want. In fact, this is something we do ourselves. Our own company, Zoho, with more than 7,000 employees, runs entirely on Zoho apps. Over 40 products, that's a big, that's a big number for, for any company to, to have in their stable. There's also Zoho University. Yeah. And so I'm curious, just a little bit, can you give us a little bit on Zoho University and where that came from? How, what was the genesis behind that? 
Yeah, Zoho University is about a dozen years old now. You know, it really came about from a set of corporate convictions that evolved at Zoho and practicing what we preach. So some of our convictions come from actually a rejection of widely accepted norms around people development. And I'll just point out to a few tenets to, to clarify that. The first part of it that I'll point out is we definitely have a strong anti-credentialist bent. What that means is, as a company, we don't look at degrees or university pedigree or marks that people wear on their sleeve to conclude how successful they will be in life. So that's one aspect of it. So we therefore have to evolve a method that works for us when hiring and recruiting people. The second thing is we also come from the belief that companies and organizations must take an active role in our society to develop the people. They shouldn't wait for educational institutions and somebody else to do this and hand it over to them. So that's part of the reason why we went down this path on our own. And finally, I'll point out one more thing. A lot of times people talk about sparse talent, you know, the, the fight for talent, especially <laughs> where I come from in Silicon Valley. Talent is under your nose. You know, you, you just have to find it and develop it rather than abdicate the job to somebody else. So that's how we actually got started with Zoho University. We went to pick some uh, young kids. We picked them up at the high school level and uh, built them out into people who could productively work in society and without having a college degree. And we've been fairly successful at it so far. Excellent. It's a different perspective, right? It's a different bent. Well, you know, I, I, we hear that all the time. Oh, I don't have enough people to fill these jobs. And, and that taking the time to identify the right individuals to invest in, that's, that's a powerful shift, one that, that apparently has paid off great dividends for Zoho. Yes, it absolutely has so far. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So let's jump into um, the topic. Of the, and, and this is all really kind of leads right into it. You know, mm-hmm. contact points between employee engagement, AI and recruiting and the delicate balance of culture. Now, I've read some of the articles you wrote at the end of last year on these topics. And I want to explore a little bit more how these things intersect. So let's start with AI. Right? It's kind of a buzzword right now. But in the recruiting process uh, and the hiring funnel and the start of the employee experience, how would you recommend people? will be leveraging AI effectively. Mm-hmm. See, AI has got a lot of focus in, in the business world. Of course, it's got made much more noise in the consumer world. But uh, if you look at the business world, a lot of it has been focused around marketing, sales processes, prospecting, websites, optimization, things like that. And less focus has gone into, into the recruiting side of it. But let me lend you a perspective here. You know, if you think about a recruiting process, it it very much parallel. It's very much in parallel to a sales process. So, in a sales process, you actually prospect for customers. You know, you look and generate leads, and then you go and acquire those leads and convert them into customers, which is the selling process. And then you try and retain these these uh, customers with you as long as you can. And if you think about it. The recruitment process for people is uncannily similar. <laughs> you actually do the same thing. You know, you prospect there too. You're looking for somebody that, that you want to find. You want to find the right kind of people and you want to qualify them, much like what you do in sales. And then you want to try and hire them and make sure that you are the company that's attractive and meets their, their needs and aspirations. And, and then you want to retain them for the long term. So 
in a sense, a lot of the AI techniques and methods that were applied and owned in the process of customer acquisition can be applied into the process of talent acquisition. So you look for the right fit in the prospecting stage. And you know, if you look at how uh, uh, identification of talent works today, it's still fairly crude. You know, you still look at resumes and keywords to establish who you think are the right qualifications, pedigree, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And then you try and bring in these people for interviews and apply some sort of fit in an interviewing stage, which is always subjective. So <laughs> one of the things that you could say is, why don't we take the AI process of finding the kinds of customers we want and apply to people? And so you start to look at things like how do they, the same things you do for a lead, you do with a candidate. How, how do they connect with you? Did they come and meet you at an event? You know, did they actually come and learn more about you? What are some things they've done outside of their work? Because today, you, people, society is so interconnected, you can find a lot of this stuff. And then once you've got these people in, you've applied the same techniques that, that you've done in the sales process to retain them, to find the right opportunities in the company, to help them migrate to other places in the event they're not happy with what they're doing, and, and so on. So I don't see this as a departure. I see this as an application of a similar process in the new area. Excellent. It, it is a very, you know, now that you say that, it is, <laughs> the light bulb's going off. It is extremely similar. Uh, the question I guess I would have is the challenge becomes how I instruct my AI to evaluate these candidates, like the behaviors that I want to see from them mm-hmm. or, or the types of things. If I'm extending this correctly, and please correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, it, it's almost b- based on those things that you focus on or have the AI focus on or look for. Also, I would think starts to lend the kind of the first steps of making sure that the individual fits the culture because you're going to ask for those things that are going to hopefully enhance the organization as a whole. So even by the very questions that you're asking the AI to go find answers to, you're already starting to spell the recipe for what is a successful addition to the cultural soup. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and this doesn't mean you're now giving away some automaton, this idea of, of figuring out who's right for your company. It means you do the things that you would like to do. You'd like to know if somebody is interested in you. What have they learned about you? Do they look up? Do, have they read about your stuff? How much time have they spent with your market offering or your products? Have they tried to learn your culture? These are some of the things you can instruct the system to look and look for in their engagement with you prior to an interview process. So you get a sense of how people are interested in what they're looking for. And, and in a sense, it's, uh, it's different from a process where, where people are treated as maybe more like, more like resources where you just put them through a process where you look at resumes, you look at keywords, and then you have read-offs at various stages without getting a larger picture of, of what the person's about. When you work with companies or you see companies do this, how do you help them understand that the very nature of the things they ask the AI to look for will also determine part of the outcome? Because it's a, I mean, again, it's subtle. And if you really uh-huh. spend the time to think about it, it kind of becomes a little bit obvious, but, but, but not a lot of people have a lot of time to sit around and stare out the window. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, how do you help yeah. them understand that connection? See, at this stage, right, it's hard to change somebody's recruiting practice altogether. You know, people have 
developed approaches built up over time, right, where they actually look for certain qualifications, keywords, and so on. So in a sense, the way to work this thing is to provide it as a way to augment what they already do. You're looking for these types of inputs, and maybe that makes sense for your type of organization. They may not make sense for an organization like Zoho, but maybe it makes sense for you. So here's some other things you can look for. Here's some other things where you can find a person's interest, whatever they've, what other things they've contributed for, uh, co contributed towards, and, and things that they have participated in, in the past. It allows you to look for things beyond just those keywords that reduce, that uh, put the filtering process in place, presumably getting you, getting you towards a person who's more adaptable and right for your business. Uh, if, uh, you know, if I can, yeah, let me stop there. <laughs> oh, no, I feel like there was something, there was a big nugget right there. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, uh, I was reminded of uh, when, you know, Peter Drucker once famously said, right, culture is strategy for breakfast. And if you, you know, when you think of hiring people, you think of your company, your strategy, how they fit into that. Oftentimes, you lose sight of the fact that your company actually embodies some sort of culture. And how do these people fit into the culture of that recruiting effort? And uh, all companies will agree that some of these elements are important to be successful at that company. It's just that they don't actually look out for it at the front end of the process. And like I was saying earlier, they kind of try and weed this out or tease this out somehow in, in, in during an interview process. And, and I think as these AI systems develop, we'll probably see some more of these traits being able to be decipherable at the front rather than in the middle of the back end of the process. Got it. Got it. And I mean, it is, it becomes the embodiment. I mean, the questions we ask say a lot about who we are as individuals as well as yeah. the organizations. Right. And, and I think mm -hmm. people have a tendency to often spend too much time at the micro level because they're focused on putting out fires rather than really take a step back, figure out what are exactly. some really good questions you can ask, uh, even in the recruiting process. And so, okay, so that's one application of AI. Are there other ways that you're seeing kind of, I don't want to say outside the box, right? Because once you, once you explain it, uh, it's really not that odd, but other things that you've seen from an AI standpoint that have really kind of impressed you, or maybe that Zoho's doing that other people haven't thought of that you're comfortable sharing. Okay. Are, are you still talking about in the aspect of recruitment or AI in general applicable to various aspects of business? AI in general tactics of business. Okay. Okay, sure. You know, the way to think about AI is to have some concept of what you're actually trying to do with the AI. You know, so then it gives you a larger framework, and then you decide what you're building under that framework, right? Otherwise, you start justifying all these techniques and capabilities, and you may miss the picture. So uh, here's, how, here's how I would think about it. And, and how we look at it in, in some of the, in, a, in when we deploy this within our products. What are we trying to do with this? I'll, I'll pick three or four examples. One thing we're trying to do is we want to use AI to make, to improve the nature of, to improve work. So one of them is to avoid what I would call to avoid the mundane. A lot of our jobs, yours and mine included, involves doing stuff every day that's kind of boring and tedious. <laughs> now, if we, could, if we could get some fancy AI system, right, to sit down and, and take over that job, we'd be delighted. Nobody would talk about AI displacing you because it's taking away the stuff you don't want to do anyway. So that's one example. I'll give you some examples of this in, in business, but that's one fundamental purpose. Another fundamental purpose is allow AI to take over things that humans actually do badly. 
So working with enormous amounts of data and trying to find patterns and then it's a classic thing that humans will fumble and fail on and never admit it. You know, and this is something a machine can do perfectly well. So that's another example. So that would be another directional focus for what you do in AI. Uh, a corollary to that is to allow people to focus on where they can actually add value, like in making decisions or in applying judgments. So that would be a third type of area. And I'll leave you with the last one, which is because AI, especially in the context of machine learning, can look at vast patterns of data, look at prior patterns of data, it is in a unique position to perhaps actually predict and propose, to be able to say how something should be done or give you a warning of something or maybe propose that some direction could be taken. Again, this is another thing that would actually be made to anyone rather than be seen as a threat because it allows them to actually perform better. So if you lay out this framework of four or five or major intents, then you can see how you roll this into business apps. So I'll take some examples here. So if you take something like sales, mundane work, you know, lead comes in, all sales and marketing guys do the same thing. They get the lead, they respond to it in the, within whatever, 12 hours, and then the first week they send a reminder, they log it into the CRM, they have some follow-up action, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is boring stuff. If you're getting thousands of leads, who wants to do this? Let the AI do it for you. So that's an example of avoiding the mundane and fail. I'll give you an example of something, and these are actual examples of things that Zoho has done in some of our products. Analytics. So we have an analytics, a business intelligence product, and people think of analytics mostly in, as pretty pictures and graphs and so on. The interesting thing I find with analytics is if it can tell you something about what you should do or should not do. You know, I, I liken this to a set of events. So let's say you're running a logistics operation and you have all this information coming at you. I would love for my, analy my analytics system, instead of just drawing all these beautiful graphs and charts that look good on boardroom presentations, to just put everything into a red, uh, uh, into three categories, red lights, orange lights and green lights. So when I come in in the morning, I just look at the red light events and it tells me these are the things I need to take care of. And I'm a, I'm a logistics, uh, uh, let's say, a logistics coordinator or, or, or a dispatcher. And it just tells me, here are the red things that you need to take up. Here are the things that are green, don't worry about it. So what does that do now? It allows the human to focus on the right things rather than get distracted on the hundreds of things that appear on their screen or what they need to do. That would be a good role of AI, and that is something we're bringing to our, to our analytics platform. Uh, another example I can give you is, is, is in our, our writing software. We, we, have a, we have a word processor called Writer, and we built some AI into it. And that will, apart from the usual grammar checks and spell checks that you expect today, it does some interesting stuff. It analyzes your piece. And if you would let it, and of course, <laughs> some people are, uh, egos wouldn't permit them to do that. But, uh, but if you let it do that, it'll actually tell you, you know, I looked at your writing and, uh, you know, it, it will give you a scale and say it's, uh, it's hard to read. And, and it will diagnose that down and it will tell you, you have your sentence length appears really long. You know, that's a good insight. It may, tell you, it may tell you, here's some places where you're using the passive instead of maybe something that's more positive like the active. 
and uh, and stuff like that. Here's some places where you your ideas have repeated and they are two paragraphs apart. So these are the kinds of things that, you know, I started using this. I, I pride myself as a reasonably good writer and I do have an ego about it. You know? so, <laughs> I do. And so when I, when I actually turned this on the first time, I looked for ways to ridicule it. And I actually found several ways that it actually helped me. So I wrote back to the developers and said, I'll help you tune what you're doing, but you actually are on the right path. So keep doing what you're doing. Excellent. <laughs> I love that you're willing to admit the, the ego portion of it. Cause a lot of people won't admit that when it comes to AI or things like that, that really what scares them is their own sense of self-worth or, or addition yeah. of value. And if it can help you get better, I, you know, I'm a firm believer. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I consider myself a, a decent writer as well. And, and I can see how turning that on. <laughs> You might have to brace yourself a little bit to see what comes up next. But if you can do that, then the output and the value of your effort is more focused. It's cleaner. It, you communicate more effectively. And it allows you, the system, to do what human beings are proving not to be very good at, which is the focal point of really revising and getting down to concise and impactful communication. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I found even, you know, you don't have to... Just because you use a tool, that doesn't mean you abdicate to the tool, right? I, I mean, I'd still override it. You know, I make grammatical imprecisions sometimes with intent. So you want to keep that. Or there are times in this example where I look at something and it says, it'll actually point out something and say, that's a cliche. And if I'm honest, it is a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> you take it out. <laughs> yeah, I had a I had a professor in university that a rhetoric professor said, "Hey, sometimes ain't got none is perfectly acceptable." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's let's pivot just a little bit here and talk more about kind of your role at at Zoho. I mean, chief strategy officer over forty products, Zoho University, at seven thousand employees. That's no small task, right? That's no small job. So I'm always interested to find out when you look back over the last year, what is the thing that you're the most proud of in terms of accomplishments or impact inside of the organization? Over the last year, we actually, uh, you know, this may sound a little mundane. It's actually, we, it's, it's a product that we released. It was called Zoho One, and I'll tell you why we're proud of it. It's actually a product suite that includes everything that Zoho puts together, all those 40 applications I was talking about. And the reason that we're proud of it is there's no other company that has such a broad offering. That's one. And secondly, what we're trying to do is we're trying to fundamentally change the way software is being seen by companies and businesses and certainly by vendors. And let me throw a little bit of light on that. You know, traditionally, I've been in this business for a while, and traditionally in business software, vendors and, and customers think of software as some sort of this scarce resource that is so valuable that it somehow needs to be perhaps even rationed amongst the employees. So you think of, oh, are you, oh, you should, uh, I don't know if I should sign you up for the CRM software, but we got only 30 seats, you know? So what we're doing with Zoho One is flipping that whole notion on its head by basically taking software and saying software is something that everybody should have. And it's not just the source of, of, of a lot of innovation. It brings out talent and people. When somebody sits on their desk and has random access to some software that does customer surveys, they will actually use it. And their job might be in, they might be in the, in the mailroom 
but they might actually use this survey software to find out how their constituents are doing. And there you go, you created initiative out of nothing. And this is an example of simply providing these capabilities on people's desktops. So what we turned on its head was the notion of instead of software being a scarce resource that needs to be apportioned in some way. We said software is more like, it's, it's, like the, it's, it's almost like a utility, it's on your desk. You just plug onto it and everybody in your company has access to all of these 40 apps. And then just watch the wonders that happen. Somebody figures out how to use analytics and decides to use it in their business. Someone has access to a spreadsheet that they probably never used or to a custom application software and they actually play around and build their own little custom app. And you see how it opens up innovation and it uncovers initiative in the company. We are a standing testimony to that. We do this with all our employees and we find people who come in with an English major who are actually building apps in the second year. Why? Because they could and because the tools were on their desktop. So that's what I'm proud of because we're trying to change the way people see it with Zoho One, that single collection of things, and a lot of work went into that to get to this point last year. Oh, and that's another that's another paradigm shift, right? For a lot of organizations, a lot a lot of organizations that we work with, we have to ask people in different in different areas of the organization. Do you have access to this tool? Do you have access to that yes. tool? Oh no, we don't have access to that one, but we have yes. this one instead. And it's like, how do you how do you benefit from the collective whole if you don't have a consistent stack tech stack? And now it sounds like you guys have really put something forward that'll change that approach. Yes, you put it forward and you make everything available to everybody. Of course, you create the right permissions in the organization, but you basically allow people to uncover things and figure out how to use it. They don't need to be taught or trained. Humans are fundamentally creative. So if you just put that software, people say, oh, I saw this, let me play around with this. And it won't be everybody, but it'll be that third or fourth person. And that's all you need to drive innovation in an organization. Excellent. All right. So let's look into the future, right? So we, we did this thing the past year with Zoho One. Very proud of it. When you look through, you know, the rest of 2019 and 2020, what's the top thing you're focused on? See, our top concern is to remain competitive and be true to our principles in the kind of markets we work on today. And let me explain that a bit. Today, we work in markets that are flush with cheap capital and easy money. <laughs> a lot of, you know, the most software companies today, especially yep. the ones on the cloud, are hugely unprofitable and almost proud of it. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the genuine concern that we should have, a macro concern, should actually be how unconcerned these companies are about that. You know, so that's fundamentally different from a strategy that we've undertaken. We're a private company. We've been around for 23 years. We've been profitable every one of those 23 years. And we only grow, we've grown very well at a fairly good clip comparable with, com- comparable with many other companies out there. But we only grow if we can be profitable as we grow. And if you're a private company, that's a fundamental challenge you face. And perhaps it is self-imposed because we could have chosen to go another path. But it goes against the type of values that we want to build. So since we've chosen as a company not to raise money at crazy and unsustainable valuation, we have to remain competitive in what we do, and that means living within our means. And that is the big challenge here because we've done it for all these years. And when there's so much of capital in the market, you do people doing stupid things, spending a lot of money in marketing, making it tough for, uh, for everybody out there. And, 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 and this goes back to the notion of long-termism, right? These, many of these companies would stick around for a few years and the company gets flipped over or goes out of business. 
And if you're in the long term, you have to take the stance that we do. And in some ways, you know, it's like uh, if you look at the market today, you're reminded of what uh, Warren Buffett once said. You know, he, he said something to the effect that it's only when the tide goes out that you know who's been swimming naked. <laughs> so, so I think, <laughs> so I think uh, that's our big challenge. Our big challenge is to keep to that principle of running a company that's tight, profitable, continues to grow, and be able to do that in an environment where there's a lot of money floating around and people don't have to subscribe to those same values. Right. So you have, you have the double challenge of adhering to the principles in, in a sea that is extremely choppy and full of a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm, I'm assuming you've seen the MarTech stack or MarTech 5000 image, yeah. right? Which yeah. is, yeah. you want to talk about precision and, and maybe this is my ADD kicking in, but the, it's not the MarTech 5000. There's over 6,000 companies in that thing. They call it the exactly. MarTech 5000 because it sounds good from a branding perspective. Yeah. Um, Exactly. Sorry, got off on a rant there. Obviously, that's a button for me. But when you talk about working with all of these, you know, providing all of this to individuals and staying profitable, obviously profitability is easy enough to measure. You mentioned being able to achieve consistent growth on par with other individuals. Do you guys look at things like market share or are there other metrics beyond the, you know, profitability that you also are concerned about? See, the biggest thing is the, the core thing is we have to be profitable. That's almost the tenant for us, you know, so we won't, we won't grow beyond our means and we live within them. So that's one. The second thing is we want a, we want a growth, but we, we want good growth, but we don't grow for growth's sake. When, because what that does is it sets up all kinds of disincentives and bad habits. Some of it is uh, a profligate way to spend your money. Some of it is, uh, is when you, that's in a sense what is happening in the capital market. You see how, you see how public companies focus on, on their quarterly earnings because that's the measure they're held to. And if they miss their growth, even if the growth is healthy, but they miss it by some number that they promised it would be, they get penalized for it. When, if you step back and look at it, the company is still growing at 30%. So why did they said it was 32? And they grew at 30. You know, so that's the ridiculousness of this whole, of this whole picture. So the metrics we set is we want growth, good growth, but not growth for growth's sake and not if it will come in the way of, of the values and the cultures we set. Uh, we don't explicitly look at, at market share per se. I think when you're a larger player on the market, you start to look at those things. We look at retention. That's one big part of what we do. We are in a subscription business. We know our customers have the, the right and the willingness to walk away tomorrow if they're not happy today. Sure. And so we have to live with that. And that's, uh, uh, that's probably one of the biggest metrics we watch internally is how we keep those customers and what are we doing for them day to day. Excellent. And then in terms of the profitability, I would have to believe that having Zoho University and finding those people who are going to add to the culture and grow with the organization and then having an educational structure to enable that has also been beneficial, I would think, in terms of maintaining that profitability as a core tenant of the organization. Am I accurate in that assessment? Yes. Uh, part of, the, you know, Zoho University is, is, you know, we talked about that a little bit already, and it, it comes from a certain set of, uh, of convictions that we have. And part of it is, is I would say, uh, is, is not just business. It is also, you know, sociological in some sense. You know, so we, we don't subscribe to the view that 
that students should have to pay what they do for an education today. And we have, especially in this country, we have the sad situation where the average student has something like thirty-five to forty thousand dollars in debt when they graduate, <laughs> and many many of them are far far more. And this is simply not a way to build a society where we let the next generation start out their careers in debt. So that is part of some of the things that came out here. So when we get people into Zoho University, we actually we actually pay them, we pay them a stipend. And uh, and what have and, and the honest and to be honest with it, because we don't offer a degree, you wind up getting students who don't value degrees, or generally students from wealthier backgrounds tend not to take this up because they're still enamored by the degree. You know, let me put this still want to spend that money. <laughs> and so most of the people who come to us tend to come from sections of society who might not otherwise have that opportunity. And then you, that's when you start to see the other things play out. First of all, you've got these people in, they're motivated, they probably didn't have this opportunity, many of them may not have gone to college. And now you have this set of people, you have the ability to train them, you have the ability to mold them, you have the ability to put opportunities in front of them, and then you see many of them actually step up. And if we are relatively loose in our valuation, we don't come in saying, oh, he, today things are so specialized that people hire somebody with a PhD in AI. You know, that's the kind of thing they look at. We bring in somebody at the high school level, we train them in broadly software engineering, and we get them into, into a role. And many times we find that people work out and sometimes they don't, and that's cool. We'll find something else for them to do. After all, we run a company, we have people in engineering, we have people in support, we have people in, in, in writing, we have people in everything, in marketing, you name it, right? So we'll find another spot for them. So that allows you to be less rigid in the way you evaluate people. It allows you to have a culture that allows people to have a second chance and a third chance, because if you don't do that, you wind up making an assumption that something didn't work out because the candidate was wrong or the, or the, or the employee was wrong, and it could just as well likely that the company was wrong and put the person in the wrong job. So you see how all these fit together. When you have this thing, it allows you to be more flexible. It allows you to work with a culture that is less rigid and therefore it allows people to grow into something that they might otherwise not have had exposure to. Well, and when, you, when I look at all of it, when I hear you talk about all of it, and I, I know I come back to the education piece, but when I hear, you know, that we talk about AI, we talk about, you know, 40 products into one enabling organizations. I mean, you have a very, I can't think of a better, better word than wise, in my opinion, tenants that underlie the organization uh, and have obviously have proven to be extremely valuable because you guys have been around for 23 years. Is Zoho University something that you guys do 100% internally? Was that developed? I mean, it's been around 12 years. So is that all internally or do you plug in other things that maybe your employees are asking for as well? No, it's, it's all done internally. So the, the teachers, the people who teach, many of our employees look forward to this opportunity, actually. So some of them actually want to go and teach at Zoe University. And we have, it's a completely internal perspective. A lot of it is because we wanted to retain this culture. We're not trying, we'll never go and try and create an accredited university. We don't believe in the notion <laughs> sure. of providing a degree out of it and so on. So we don't want to be influenced by third parties who might have those kinds of conflicting aims. So this is something we want to do because it's the right thing to do for people who don't have an opportunity. It also helps our business and it helps companies 
take that responsibility where we started this conversation of being part of building people up rather than waiting for parents and educational institutions to have to deliver that to them. And it's taking the responsibility and the accountability into the organizational level very, yeah. very much. Uh, it, yeah. it puts a smile on my face. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. So, all right, let's change yeah. direction a little bit here. I ask all of our guests kind of two standard questions towards the end of every interview. And the mm-hmm. first is you're a chief strategy officer. So for salespeople, that makes you a potential prospect <laughs> or, you know, we can call it target too, but there, people want to get in front of you. And I'm always uh-huh. curious to understand when somebody doesn't have a referral, when, when they don't have that trusted you know, relationship with somebody that you trust, what have for you personally, what do you find the most effective way for someone to capture your attention and get that 15 minutes on your calendar to talk to you about something they believe is going to provide value to you? When I'm engaging with a person, it's actually fairly simple for me. When, when I'm engaging with someone, I always look to see if they would listen or would they rather talk. <laughs> you know, so that's a, it's a very simple set. You know, so are they listening? Do they understand my requirements or pain points or whatever it is? If they miss that, then they don't deserve a hearing. Because you're trying to get my attention. You should be listening to me. And if you, so a lot of times when I get on these things and people try to reach out and I find them coming there with an agenda and maybe a, a yellow pad full of notes, I realize they've missed the point. <laughs> <laughs> the ability to listen is so is becoming such uh, a rare commodity these days, right? I, I see it all the time. People just want to talk and talk and talk. All right. So last question, we call it our acceleration insight. If there's one thing you could tell sales, marketing, or consultants out there, one piece of advice that if they listen to, you'd give them that you believe will help them hit their targets. What would it be and why? Uh, again, this is fairly, uh, I would say, do fewer things better. Ah, I love it. uh, Let me just explain what I mean by that. You know, we have the situation today where we have all these modern tools and technologies that all collectively conspire to distract you and make you feel that you're really productive. You know, and that's the world we are in. (laughs) So I would would reject many of them. You know, so your emails are rarely as important as you think as the time you devote to it or as you think it is. If you do, your to-do lists are probably way too long to be meaningful. You have projects where I would say you take on some, if you take on some projects, you just look for that 20% of what you should work on that delivers 70, 80% of the outcome and just forget about the rest. Ignore the rest. I think today is because of all these, let's talk about multitasking. Multitasking, I think, is a really lazy way of avoiding focusing on the job you need to get done. So I would say just do fewer things better. It's, I mean, it's a powerful statement, right? I mean, there is no such thing as anybody who... I'm a, kind of a brain science guy. And so th- there is no way for the human brain to actually multitask. You can context switch. Absolutely. But if yeah. you think you're multitasking, you're basically screwing up two things simultaneously. Exactly. 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 <laughs> All right, Vijay. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show. I want to make sure that our listeners, if there's somebody out there that wants to get in touch with you to explore Zoho One or other elements of the conversation, today, what's, the, what's the best way to go about that? Hit you up on LinkedIn or the website? What works best for you? Uh, they could definitely find me on LinkedIn. Uh, they could also, I, I'll put my email address out there. It's uh, my Vijay, my first name, dot last name, Sundaram, Vijay.Sundaram at ZohoCorp.com. 
Excellent. Thank you again for being on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Chad. Same here. I had fun too. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode. Check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, families, coworkers. You know the drill. Write us a review. Give us suggestions on guests you want to hear from. And until next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.